welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters. My name is Tim Merriman. I'm your host coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. And today it's my pleasure to have an old friend and colleague, Dr. Ted Cable, Professor Emeritus from Kansas State University, where he had a 34-year career in park management and conservation. Three occasions, he's been a visiting professor at a university in France. In 2008, as part of a Fulbright Award, he taught interpretation to tourism students at the University of Bamako, Mali in West Africa. More recently, he's been giving guest lectures at the University of Freiburg in the Black Forest region of Germany. He's author of 15 books about birds, travel, heritage interpretation, and over 200 articles and various other presentations related to those same subjects. Uh, Dr. Jane Goodall honored Ted by writing the foreword for his book on West African conservation. He's won many awards, including the William C. Everhart Award from Clemson University. And in 2000, he was named a fellow of the National Association for Interpretation. So it's my pleasure to welcome an old friend, Dr. Ted Cable. Well, Ted, it's great to see you again. It's been, I guess, almost a decade since our paths have crossed. Yeah, yeah, it is great to see you as well. I can't remember exactly if you were uh, where we saw each other last, but of course, over the many years, we would typically see each other at NAI conferences, both domestic and international. And uh, uh, yeah, so it's great to see you too. Well, we've been on the big island of Hawaii on a little coffee farm for nine years. And we did a little consulting out of uh, Fort Collins in 2012, 13, 14, 15, after leaving NAI. So probably uh, probably back around 2012. So I suppose, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's great to see you. Well, you are well known in this profession for your books. And uh, I want to talk about that a little later. But I'm curious, sure. to, how did you end up in this profession in the first place? Where did you grow up? What did... What was the motivation? Sure. Well, um, uh, I was born in uh, California, actually on Coronado. My dad was in the Navy. I was born at the Navy Hospital there and uh, uh, born at a very young age, as the old joke goes. Uh, but uh, but I consider the Chicago area home. That's really where I spent most of my growing up time and uh, was going to college at the University of Illinois there in Chicago and uh, had every intention of going into medicine. Uh, I was a biology major with a chemistry minor and this was back in the late 60s, uh, early 70s, and just got sort of swept up in the whole, you know, Earth Day environmental stuff. And I happened to take an ornithology class just as a biology elective, since I was a biology major. And I just fell in love with it. I had some real defining moments. We would take our, our Saturday morning field trips out on Chicago's lakefront. And the birds often would be very exhausted coming in off Lake Michigan, the migrants. And so they would just sit at your feet. Uh, I even had a brown creeper land on my pant leg one time. This was back in the days of corduroy, you may remember. Yeah. <laughs> and I had brown brown corduroy, probably bell bottoms on. And I guess it looked enough like a tree trunk. <laughs> it's great. But um, I just got so passionate about it that within... Um, well, we were on the quarter system there, but by the spring quarter, uh, I was actually leading the field trips on Chicago's lakefront, the birding field trips. And it was so cool to um, 
you know, to see that much nature, because there were mammals and stuff there too, just in the, at the base of these skyscrapers. And uh, I thought that, that was just awesome. So I, I suppose probably to my parents' chagrin, but I uh, sort of put the medicine stuff on a hold and, and uh, tried to find a job uh, related to nature. And my first job was with Cook County Forest Preserves, a very historic organization. Uh, uh, as I recall, in Tilden's, one of Tilden's editions, he even has a picture of one of our nature centers there in Cook County. And uh, I became a naturalist and I had no idea. I'd never heard the word interpretation, but I was the naturalist, but I was doing interpretation. I just didn't know it. And my passion about, about bur all things birds really, um, led me into contact with the ornithologist from Purdue University. And he really encouraged me to uh, come down and do a master's with him there at Purdue. Well, in the meantime, the uh, uh, as is so often the case, sadly, the naturalist gig wasn't paying anything. And I was married at the time. And so I actually then taught high school for a couple of years, which actually came back to serve me well later as, as I stayed into higher education and drifted into higher education. But uh, so I was a high school biology teacher and science teacher, and then then did eventually go down to Purdue to do a master's degree in wildlife. But again, I was studying wetland bird species. And I finished that. And, uh, you know, again, jobs were hard to find. And, and at some point in that time period, I really became... Uh, convicted about the idea that, you know, we sort of know how to manage deer and pheasants and stuff like that, but we really don't know how to manage people. And, uh, and so I really started thinking more about the human dimensions aspect of it. And, and uh, Doug Knutson was at Purdue there, and he was the interp guy and the outdoor recreation guy. And uh, we owned a home there and just outside of Lafayette in a little historic town called Battleground, Indiana. Uh, my wife had a good job there, and all that to say that we were very comfortable there, and and Doug encouraged me to stay on. Like I said, I had these leanings that maybe, you know, the best impact I could have would be more in the social science sector and sort of leave the biology behind, and so, so I decided to uh, pursue the PhD under Doug uh, and, and work in the world of interpretation. Uh, and my early, my well, my PhD research was actually done up in Canada, and it was again a guy named Dave Stewart who I think I met through early NAI meetings. Uh, my first NAI meeting, by the way, was uh, 1981 in Estes Park, and uh, in fact, I still have the mug sitting here behind me. I'll <laughs> the uh, I don't know if you can see that, but it's Estes Park, 1981. You know, I remember. I'm sure you were there. Yeah. I think that's probably where I first met you. Yeah. Uh, as I recall, I, I remember you, you know, playing music and that yep. sort of thing. And that was my first introduction, really, to interpretation, let alone NAI. Yeah. Uh, uh, there at the YMCA of the Rockies. And so, uh, so yeah, so I, I, I met Dave, and he wanted some research done up at the place called the Petawawa National Forestry Institute, where he worked. And they had a, a museum along the Trans-Canada Highway, an interpretive center, and some outdoor trails and so forth. And so I, I did my work there and, um, you know, really fell in love with the idea of interpretation and, and the 
and the practicality and the purpose of it. Again, going back to my wildlife roots, you know, that was the, sort of the whole motivation for getting into the in the social science end of things anyways, was, you know, to to maybe better manage people uh, to do and provoke them to do conservation and so forth. All those things we've talked about sort of as interpretation as a management tool. And uh, so, yeah, that's really how I how I entered the field and ultimately graduated and got my PhD there uh, from Purdue and uh, took the job at Kansas State. I never really dreamt I'd still be there my whole career. And I did have some opportunities to leave as much as we faculty like to complain about things. When I looked at other institutions, the grass really wasn't any greener <laughs> over there. In fact, I, I was so blessed at Kansas State. Um, it was It was a great program and they just let us we had so much academic freedom. So that's how I was able to write, I ended up writing 15 books, uh, including four about birds and several on interpretation and so forth. Um, I was able to write, I was able to travel uh, internationally. And uh, I think other institutions, you know, they would have, it would have been more difficult to get away or to do that or to sort of set my own course. Yeah, Kansas State proved to be a great place to uh, work. And uh, yeah, so I stayed there the 34 years and uh, here I am. <laughs> I didn't realize we had so much overlap in our backgrounds. I I did my bachelor's in zoology, master's in botany at SIU Carbondale. I took a job in 1967 at Glenbard West High School in Chicago area. Wow. Yeah. Each biology. And I backed out on them because <laughs> I went back to Carbondale and uh -huh. received a one wide deferment card in the mail. And of course, Vietnam was going yeah. crazy. Right. And uh, botany department offered me an assistantship. And so I made that hard choice about, do I want to go? I, Cause I like teaching. Yeah. I love yeah. stuff. Yeah. And yeah. so I went off in that, but. Wow. That is interesting. Sort of parallel paths uh, well, with botany and birds. <laughs> well, then I went to California and, uh, to work on a PhD at Berkeley in 69. And my major professor retired on me this semester I got there and uh -huh. so said, they're not, not gonna replace me with a phycologist, an algae guy. You'd have to go into molecular. And I said, I'm, I can't do that. Uh -huh. I spent the rest of the semester hitchhiking to Point Reyes Bird Observatory and, uh -huh. and leading hikes on the bird trails. And fell in love kind of simultaneously with birds and ornithology and education. Yeah. yeah, wow, boy, we do have a lot of parallel paths there that we've uh, we've traveled. That is uh, that's really interesting. That's, well, I had to actually take a few like ed site classes and stuff to get certified to teach there in Indiana, at Northwest Indiana, and I mean it it was difficult. And man, I have the utmost respect for high school teachers and. I did then too, and they there's so much stuff you have to deal with with parents and the students and the administration. And I was in a relatively poor school district right near Gary, Indiana, with all the steel mills and so forth. And and so there was a lot of um, you know family issues going on and challenges, you know, besides the school stuff. And uh, uh, I was, you know thankful that I had sort of an escape route to to Purdue to do that master's degree but I left with I'm, I'm a sort of a high school teacher dropout I guess you would say because to this day and of course I've raised my own 
kids and they've gone through the high school stuff too. And, and to this day, I, it was so, it's so much easier to teach at a university than it was to teach at that high school in, in Gary that, uh, like I said, I have a ton of respect for those folks that stuck it out. Like I said, I, I bailed after two years and went back to graduate school. Yeah. Well, that's what I did. And I, um, oddly, I've been teaching the last seven years or so at uh, Hawaii Community College. Oh, great. One of the gigs that went with that was to teach at the local high school that's only three miles away from me, uh-huh. and, uh, teach an early college class. And so okay. I actually back in the high school classroom, but teaching, wow. yeah, hospitality <laughs> and tourism. So, oh, awesome. <laughs> that's well, great. Let me take that another place then. Um, I wondered how you knew Dr. Knudsen. Yeah. Because interestingly, my nature center job for 1980 to 93 in Pueblo, Colorado, when I met Doug Knudsen for the first time and told him I worked in Pueblo, Colorado, he says, oh, I used to live there. My dad was the president of the university there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Doug had those Colorado roots. In fact, he's, uh, I don't hear from him as often as I, I should, but you know, he retired back to Colorado and he lives up in the mountains there at a place okay. called uh, South Fork, I think is the name or his address, but, and he's still, still living and uh, up there in, back in Colorado's. That's wonderful. Yeah. 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 I, last so, time I talked He to just you. happened to be in the department. I, again, I went to Purdue to study birds, but that was all in the, for, in the forestry department in those days, forest recreation and for, and wildlife and all that was in the same department so just uh serendipitously the birds got me there but then you know doug was right down the hall and and uh i would see some of the exhibits that he would have his students do in the hallway bulletin boards and stuff like that and uh uh yeah it, it worked out in a wonderful way well i know i last time i talked to doug was when i was still at nai and i had someone in chile who needed someone to go to a high mountain community and do some interpretive training. And mm-hmm. uh, I knew Doug spoke Spanish. Yeah. So I, I contacted <laughs> him. He, he said, Oh, sure. I'd love to do that. And uh, <laughs> later he told me he had a great experience. So. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. Well, what led to you and he and Larry writing a book together? I mean, how did you know Larry? Did yeah. Larry go to Purdue? No, Larry actually came and took a position at Kansas State. So yeah, that was really an interesting uh, thing. So I, I came to K-State in 84 and was teaching interpretation. That was one of my initial assignments. And uh, But in the mid-80s, there was no interpretive textbook available. You know, Grant Sharp, Sharp, Grant Sharp was the, the, the main textbook. It's the one that I used when I took interpretation from Doug then ultimately at Purdue, but it was out of print. And so uh, so I was teaching a course with no textbook and there was none in the field that I was aware of as far as a comprehensive textbook that you would use for a college course. I mean, there was Tilden, of course, but you know, taught out of Sharp. And, and so that's what I was looking for, something like that. And, oh, you know, there was even a company that with the time that would handle copyright stuff and you could photocopy, you know, chapters and all that. I think they were out of Oklahoma. So I did that for a while where I 
you know, would copy chapters from Sharp and have them bound and and do and do it through that that company that would uh, would handle that. Anyway, so I but I knew that Doug had written a very successful textbook on outdoor recreation. It was published by Macmillan, you know, big publisher, and it was I think the textbook that was used for intro to outdoor recreation courses. Oh. It had been in multiple editions. So I knew Doug knew how to write a textbook. <laughs> and uh, so I contacted him and I, I uh, you know, asked him if he'd be interested and, and he was, and uh, he asked that I take the lead on it. And I, I guess he may not have been, I guess he probably wouldn't have been retired at that point. But anyway, but because of his experience writing textbooks, I, I brought him on board. I found, I, I met with folks from, um, from Venture Publishing uh, and sort of sold them on the idea. I met them at an NRPA meeting. So we started down that path of writing it. And at about that time, uh, this would have been about uh, 1993, I guess, uh, I had an opportunity to, to go and live in Africa for a year, take a year-long sabbatical live in Africa, work there at a uh, mission school, teaching high school again to uh, missionary kids and Peace Corps kids and embassy kids and stuff like that. So it was done in English. And also to work on, and, and I had the idea then to work on a book on West African conservation. So it, my, it worked out perfect. My wife could serve as the school nurse and my I have three boys and they could go to school at the mission school, which was on the American system. So they wouldn't be goofed up as far as their progress and through elementary school and so forth. But thought, man, this is, could be life-changing for my children. They may never get a chance to live overseas and experience Africa and everything. So I, I chose Africa. And uh, so anyway, so I ended up in Africa. I, I wrote a book called Commitments of the Heart, Odysseys in West African Conservation. But anyway, getting back to the interp text, but I thought, you know, leaving, I was sort of bailing out on Doug that whole time for a year or more. And in the meantime, Larry, his program had gotten eliminated at San Diego State, his, the whole department and budget cuts. And so he applied for a job. I didn't know him. I didn't know him from Adam, but uh, he applied for a job at Kansas State. And we hired him. And so he actually moved to Kansas uh, and uh, we, we hit it off. And so I thought it would be great, Larry, if you know, if you would come on board to sort of help keep this afloat. Because Doug, I mean, Doug was great and I think the world of him, but he had a lot of other stuff going on too. And, you know, like I said, he wanted to just play a minor role in it, but we had already you know, had contracts and everything and with the publisher. And so, so I brought Larry on or Larry agreed to come on to sort of fill in for me for at least the year I was gone just to keep things on track. So in those days, early nineties, internet was just and nowadays you'd think, oh, geez, you just do Zoom. It wouldn't be a yeah. thing. But in those days, obviously, we didn't have that. In fact, it's kind of an interesting dynamic. Just my communication back with Kansas State University and with Larry and Doug, uh, they would they could send an email to a Rice Institute. I was in the Ivory Coast uh, to a, a, a you know, world-renowned Rice Institute that was 17 kilometers away from me. And... There was a guy there that I knew. Well, I knew his little boy, a little boy about five or six years old named Rotomy. And he would come to the school and from their village. He would walk, you know, just from the village. And so an email would go, you know, all the way to outer space and back onto a satellite and back to the Rice Institute. His dad would print it off. He would give it to little, little Rotomy, the little African boy, who would then 
bring it to me. You know, this little barefoot African boy would bring me the, then I would type something up or give a disc or something with my response to Rotomi. And he would take it home to the village and give it to his dad at the Royce Institute. So that's how we communicated. So the, like I said, this all involved satellite communication, but the key was this little five-year-old African boy, Rotomi, who would transfer messages back and forth with Doug and Larry and I. So uh, yeah, that was kind of fun. But uh, yeah, so that was, I mean, the only reason I had no great aspirations to write a book, but it was just a practical thing that I thought the profession needed one. And I personally needed one for my classroom use. And so it just came out of that need of uh, that time period where there really was no uh, uh, tax. And then chapters on the business of interpretation or the history of the profession and stuff like that, that you'd have maybe in a comprehensive uh, textbook representing the entire breadth of the profession. But anyway, yeah, that's so that's the story of how, how it all came together. Eventually, they reinstated Larry's program, and he went back to his old haunts at San Diego. That was uh, my next question. I know, I know yeah. that's where he is and where he's been a long time. And so, yeah, I now he boomeranged back to where he. Came. That's exactly it. His, uh, yeah, he just he, they had wiped out his program. The, the state government or something had massive cuts, and uh, so we were fortunate enough to get him. And, and it was really life changing for me. I mean, as I look back at my career, there was just so many wonderful things and fortunate opportunistic things I mean just meeting him because we went on to write uh, I don't know if you count the different editions probably like seven books together or something like that and uh, with the gifts book and the, the multiple editions and then the textbook and then the little interpretive perspectives which NAI had done together and uh, yeah we had we had uh, you know became uh, you know real partners and throughout our careers in many ways and so uh, Again, that was just so fortuitous that uh, that's, that's he great. calls it his Kansas. He calls it his Kansas sabbatical. Uh, <laughs> that's great. So uh, a year in Cote d'Ivoire, did you uh, speak French before going there? No, I didn't. My wife speaks French and um, and I picked up enough to you know be able to go to the market or something. But uh, but again, it was just it was just such a fluky situation because. This was an American school, and so the the everything was done in English. And we had students actually from Ghana, uh, who's these Ghanaian families who wanted their kids to have an English speaking education, and they were for some they were transplanted to Cote d'Ivoire. So we actually had, you know, African children there, but they were either from Nigeria or Ghana or some other English speaking African country. So that's that's the again just the way I was able to sort of fake my way through that as everything was done in English and so I would teach in the mornings I would teach they hired me to teach science and uh, but then I ended up teaching you know sophomore English and all kinds of other high school sorts of subjects including physics and chemistry in which case I was you know one chapter ahead of the kids you know I couldn't remember that side had it all but um but then then in the evenings and on weekends I would travel to various national parks and I would interview people and and uh, interview people throughout West Africa. And uh, there was a publisher in Colorado. Maybe you knew of them called Fulcrum Publishing. Oh, yeah. 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 And uh, they were interested and they had had a book called Profiles in Conservation, where they had just interviewed conservationists. And I thought, well, I'd like to do that in West Africa. So um, we had signed a contract. They actually gave me an advance and everything. Uh, 
but then for whatever reason they dropped out i was able to keep the advance and it ended up being published by sagamore uh <laughs> after after a number of years uh when i was already working with sagamore on some other stuff but jane goodall wrote the forward for me which was a I real honor that. yeah and uh it was it was it, it turned out it turned out great and i got to meet all these really interesting people that have devoted their lives to conservation without any i mean they're sort of the anti jane goodalls they're the unsung heroes that nobody will ever hear about and sometimes they've worked under very difficult or dangerous situations and and so um yeah i really was considered it a privilege to try to tell their stories yeah i i recently had a conversation with a friend in rwanda who I, he runs a program in a little village where he, he leads guided tours on bikes and in vehicles, but he runs a preschool that feeds about 43 to five year olds every morning and then teaches them numbers, English, yeah. various things. And uh, he's right at the entrance to Akagira National Park. And when we met him, he was a, a food server at a tented camp, Ruzizi Tented Lodge. And he was also a marathon runner and on the national team for Rwanda. And so I said, John, why did you end up here? He said, well, I lost my father when I was uh, seven and my mother had three children and we had no way to actually get enough. And he said, yeah, the park rangers at Akagera let me become a houseboy and do work around their home for $2 a month. Wow. <laughs> I walked seven miles to school each day and back in grade school. And so now he's given back to his community. <laughs> well, talking about Africa, uh, you also worked in Timbuktu? Yeah, um, and in, in Mali in a larger sense. Um, that came about uh, because my wife uh, has the distinction of being the first um, white-skinned woman born in the city of Timbuktu and which is of course this ancient city and and uh historic and uh you know on and on and uh, they actually have a statue for the first white you know European guy that arrived there but no statue for my wife she always thinks that's you know she always jokes with them when we're back but uh but yeah her parents were missionaries there and uh and this would have been in the early 1950s. So she was born in 53 and uh, she was just born on a sandy floor. I mean, obviously there were French were there and around the time, but they would always go back to France to have their children because it's such a severe environment there. And yeah, she was just born there and on Christmas day, no less. And, uh, and she was taken to the market and weighed on the meat scale <laughs> to get a weight for her. <laughs> and so she literally grew up the first, uh, they came back to visit the States a few times, but basically grew up her first 17 years of life was in Timbuktu. Uh, she would be sent to boarding schools occasionally, like uh, she went to Guinea for a while and uh, over to Niger uh, in, in Miami for a school, I think for seventh and eighth grade. But but fundamentally, I mean, and basically Timbuktu was home to her for um, for the first 17 years of her life. Um, and she knew she wanted to be a nurse and she was very impacted by some missionary nurses that she encountered throughout her growing up years there in West Africa. And so when she was 17, I mean, communication was so bad. She tried correspondence courses and stuff like that. But, you know, the boats would only arrive twice a year up the Niger River and stuff. I mean, it was just terrible. So. She went back to live with an uncle in the Chicago area um, in the town I lived in. And uh, 
I guess maybe that would have been like her junior year of high school. And um, so we met, that's how we met there. And she went on to become a nurse and, and throughout her career, she's opened up a, a clinic for women in uh, Sierra Leone. She did one for women for a specific problem that women have there. Uh, well, they have at other places, but especially there with a lot of the uh, uh, abuse and terrible atrocities, a fistula problem. So, and she opened up one in Niger with the World Fistula Fund uh, in a former leper colony. And uh, she has an orphanage and a, a clinic in Haiti um, that back probably around 2000, she, they, she helped establish. The orphanage was established after the earthquake there, which I think was 2010 or whenever that was. Um, so, uh, but anyway, yeah. So, I mean, so, I mean, you know, her whole life has been, uh, you know, focused on, I mean, she was a nurse here in the States too, and a director of nursing and all that at a local hospital. But even to this day in her retirement, she uh, leads medical teams of surgeons to, um, to places to do surgery at no cost to the locals. Uh, she's done Ethiopia a couple of times, Tanzania several times. She just, her most recent one was just uh, this past spring. She, in March, she was in, she took a team to Ghana. And uh, she can't really go back to Haiti for the past several years because of the, the anarchy really there. It's just too dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. She got, she's been robbed there on previous trips even. And now it's just too, you know, too dangerous. So, but yes, that's her world. So you, you know, that's a long answer, but, well, but obviously she had links to Timbuktu. And so in 1990, uh, her cousins also worked there as missionaries and they had had an agroforestry project just on the outside of Timbuktu. And they asked me to come because I'd actually, you know, my PhD was in a forestry department and my home at K-State was in a forestry department. So by osmosis, I guess I knew a little bit about forestry and so I went and tried to help them and consult a little bit there. And then that was 1990. And then it was 93 when I went back to that sabbatical on Ivory Coast. But of course, we went up to Timbuktu and took the kids up so they could see where their mother lived. And it was just a time capsule. I mean, her the same towels that she had used in the 1970s with her name on it and the same metal furniture. It's all metal furniture because of termites and stuff was still there. It was like she never left. It was a very powerful experience for her. But so 1990, I did some consulting there. And then I guess it must have been about 2008, I got a Fulbright to go back to Mali and teach, essentially teach interpretation. You know how that goes where, you know, we struggle with that word, right? So it was some sort of tourism guiding. Yeah. Uh, but essentially it was interpretation uh, to tour guides in Mali. And we were at the University of Bamako, but we had guides come down from Timbuktu and Gao and Mopti and all these tourist uh, destinations. And I had the opportunity to, to do that with my colleague from France, who they had a link with the University of Bamako and my university had a link with the University of Bamako. And so obviously she uh, spoke French fluently and you may have run into her thanks at conferences too, Catherine Morgan Pru. Uh, I did meet yes. Yeah. yeah, and I'm still in touch with her. Like I said, I was there in September. Um, and so we teamed up to, uh, to teach there at Bamako. And then while I was there on that trip, I was able to go up to the Timbuktu region and, and I, I worked, I guess I worked for the Forest Service International Programs, U.S. Forest Service has an international programs endeavor. 
but we were tagging along at least for part of the time with National Geographic TV and they were doing a um, documentary on the, the migrating herds of ele desert elephants that are near Timbuktu and they migrate uh, 600 kilometers around and follow the rains. And it was part of their great migration series. And so that was really fun. But our role was to meet with village leaders and talk about tourism and guiding. And, you know, would they welcome ecotourism um, or elephant-based tourism uh, in their villages? Do they want that? Don't they want it? And if they do, you know, talk about training guides and, and handle hospitality and all that stuff. Uh, um, so yeah, so I was able to do that, and that was a you know really wonderful experience. And then uh, yeah, so uh, 2012, I think it was again, it got dangerous there. That's the problem, and especially in West Africa, it's uh, there was you know the Al Qaeda in the north of Mali. You know there was all kinds of raids. In fact, there's just been I think some people killed there just recently. I saw in the news some UN peacekeepers. It just got to be such a mess, and. It's so sad because these people were so interested in the elephants and and trying to develop some tourism and and provide a financial incentive for them to protect the elephants because they are they're they're like the world's largest garden pest. You know these these villagers would have little guards on the back. Yeah. Yeah, how do you chase <laughs> off a night an elephant would <laughs> come in and trash their garden? Uh, so um, my understanding was at least after that 2012. I guess you'd call it war. Um, only a handful of elephants were killed as part of that, thankfully. But I mean, obviously, you know, many of the people I met with probably died or were displaced. That's probably went to the south of Mali to escape all that. And uh, so, yeah, so those are some of my Timbuktu related stories. I'd put some stuff about, I'd interviewed a couple of people for that Africa book about, you know, people trying to. Uh, save nature around Timbuktu, and it's a wonderfully rich place because it's on the the northern bend of the Niger River, and there's some wetlands and a large percentage of Europe's waterfowl uh, winter there. The migratory birds come down, and it's it's spectacular. I mean, it really did have the, the biological potential, the ecological potential for nature-based tourism, if they could ever make it a safe destination. You know, so. Well, I we've had a little similar experience in that in 2012 we were Lisa and I were hired uh, by USAID and uh, their subcontractor, a nonprofit, to do training in Rwanda. And oh, course, okay, yeah. 94 genocide in Rwanda left a lot of scars on the people and on the landscape. We were actually doing training there, and I was sitting in a dining room and a bunch of Peace Corps volunteers came in. I said, oh, where are you volunteers? They said, Mali, but we've been told to leave the country. Mm. And yeah. uh, we hope we'll yeah. go back. But they said, for right yeah. now, it's not safe to be there. So Yeah, it was good, bad. And Rwanda, I was in Africa, I guess, when that was happening, because I remember listening to the BBC on shortwave radio. Again, this is all pre-internet days, just about the atrocities and just... The, the reports from the BBC about, uh, I'll never forget some British officer, just you can tell he was almost in tears talking to the reporter about how this war is not fought with bombs that are being dropped or whatever. It's being fought door to door with machetes, you know, people mm -hmm. going door to door. And, you know, in some ways it made, the, made it more personal, I guess, to him or whatever. But 
uh, because the killing was almost you know, one on one, family by family, going door to door, and it's just. And uh, when my wife worked in Sierra Leone, that was right after the 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 atrocities in Sierra Leone when she went in to help uh, start that clinic for women there. And I mean, it was just barbaric, Tim. I mean, they so that the government had some program called something like hands hands for Sierra Leone or hands for the government. And so the opposition went around cutting off people's hands, and they literally dumped truckloads of hands, human hands, on the steps of the Capitol. I mean, it's just just barbaric you know it was terrible but uh the, the interesting thing in rwanda is uh akagira national park was uh, over against tanzania uh, on a river and the beautiful thing about the the park was it had this savanna like the serengeti but uh -huh. it lost a lot of the big animals uh many species during the genocide because people moved in and just lived off the land uh Bushman. Yeah. and uh we've gotten to train with their guides there and a wonderful group called african parks foundation runs akigera and the young national parks i guess a dutch billionaire left his money to that to take over parks in crisis and put them back on a sustainable basis but train local people to run them not right not experts yeah. and they just yeah. did an amazing job Oh, that's wonderful. That is wonderful. That that uh, that gives us so much hope, you know, uh, uh, which is uh, something I think we all need when we talk about the world Absolutely. that we work in. Absolutely. I uh, have always liked your Gifts of Interpretation book. I think it's one of the better resources available. You know, of course, we Thank use you. Uh, with the certification program as one of the books that we wanted people to read and yeah uh, i wonder are you still writing books are you working on anything or well i've uh still uh writing um larry and i have kicked around some ideas of trying to apply the interpretive principles maybe to other sectors because you know fundamentally they're just good communication principles we've had people say you should write a business book you know for the corporate world based on this and and we actually even started on one um, for years. Uh, you know, Larry and I both are churched people, for lack of a better word. And we'd have people come up and say, man, my my pastor is so boring or my priest is so boring or my rabbi is so boring. And I would they should read your book, you know, interpreters that had that had, had some sort of faith background. And um, so we actually dabbled with that for a while, just trying to write sort of a version of these principles. but targeted towards that audience and i don't know now that we're both now that he just larry just retired just in may i read and so that. yeah and so uh, i don't know if we'll pick that up again now we sort of dabbled with that for a while but with the writing that i'm doing now is um it's interpretive i'm trying to practice what i preached for many years i uh, i had written uh several uh travel books about driving down interstates and again that came from a very interpretive moment, I guess. Uh, so I moved to Kansas and not a native Kansan, but I would always hear so much, take so much grief about, oh, Kansas, it's so boring. It's flat. It's, you know, that drive to Denver is so, it's terrible across Kansas. And after a few years of hearing that, uh, I thought, you know, I'm going to, I call myself an interpreter. I should do something about this, you know, and that's how most people 
developed, I mean, just statistically, I think it's true, like 35 million people at the time drove I-70 to Denver every year. So this it really became a defining mission statement of, of the rest of my career uh, was a um, an Aldo Leopold quote that said, our ability to perceive quality in nature begins as an art with the pretty. And then it moves on to successive stages of beautiful, et cetera. And and I thought, that's exactly what's transpiring here under my nose. I said, people are driving to the pretty Rocky Mountains, you know, and to see the postcard picture lakes and trees and mountain peaks and snow-capped mountains. And they're driving by the beauty of the Flint Hills, the Smoky Hills, the tall grass prairie, short grass prairie, the beauty of, um, of, of history and, and of resilience of settlers who moved out here into this harsh landscape and and the beauty of acts of courage and integrity and all this and so that really became my my professional mission statement was to help people see beauty and things that are not pretty uh based on that Aldo Leopold thing so I wrote a book about driving across Kansas the 400 and some miles on I-70 with stories to mark to the mile markers to help people see that beauty and to be more engaged and entertained and it was quite successful, I guess. I, I, the publisher asked me to do a second edition. And then I expanded that idea to Missouri. The publisher was interested in Missouri. Well, between Kansas City and St. Louis, the, the issue is different. It's more urban, and there's just a string of billboards for 250 miles. And so then our, our little mantra was to help people see beauty beyond the billboards. And then, and you'll appreciate this being from Illinois, we, just, we were asked or we were able to do one. We had the opportunity to do one on I-55, which follows old Route 66, but from St. Louis to Chicago and back. Mm -hmm. And I knew from growing up in the Chicago area, we Chicago area people thought everything south of Joliet was nothing but cornfields, you know? <laughs> and I would always hear that. Oh, that's nothing but cornfields. Driving to St. Louis is the boringest ride. It's flat and much flatter than Kansas, by the way. Um, but uh, so, so I was able to write those three books to sort of challenge myself to help people see beauty amongst the cornfields or amongst the billboards or in the emptiness and spaciousness of Kansas. So yeah, so I did that and we did several other scenic byways and stuff. Then just recently within the last year or two, um, an app was co-founded by Kevin Costner and a guy named Bill Whirlin, who also has Colorado roots. Uh, he be, grew up in Colorado and his grandpa would drive him around Colorado and point out old mine shafts and stuff. And Bill got hooked on sort of roadside interpretation. He had called that. He became the CEO of North Face, the clothing company. Yeah. And I think also was a big shot with Patagonia. And uh, anyway, so Bill's wife and Kevin Costner's wife were in a city park with their kids in Santa Barbara, where they both live, or at least have one of their homes. And uh, I guess it was the way I understand the story. Bill's wife was talking about this idea and uh, Kevin's wife, maybe former wife. Now I read the, the tabloids and I guess I got divorced, but uh, they got, they said, well, Kevin, you know, he loves to tell stories. He would love this idea, you know? So they founded this app originally it was called here, here spelled H E A R A T R E, which I thought was kind of clever. Now it's called audio, A U T I O. In fact, it was on the TV show Shark Tank not long ago. Well, I because of my highway books, myself and my co-author, um, we were brought in on that, and we're 
were sort of, I guess, they're part of their creative content team. So I'm writing stories for this app called Audio. Uh, and they're, you know, they can only be 350 to 450 words. And, and, um, and, but again, I'm, 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 you know, uh, dabbling in interpretation. You know, I'm, I'm trying to make it a little interpretive story, a 450 word story about a place. And this app, it's much better than my book situation because it's, it's linked uh, with a geotag. So when the way it works now is people download it on their phones and as they're driving anywhere in the United States, stories will pop up automatically with a picture and then they'll hear it and, and they use professional narrators. Uh, so my text, you know, goes to them and then they turn that over to a professional narrator who narrates it. And then one of their tech people, then I guess, you know, puts it all together. So it'll pop up on the app. So, so yeah, so I've been, that's been most of my fun writing is, uh, writing stories for them and they pay me a little bit to do that. It's not much, but it's beer money or something, you know, <laughs> to write right. these stories. Funny thing is that, uh, I don't know, a dozen or more years ago, Lisa and I got the idea of also applying interpretation in other areas. And we wrote one, yeah. put the heart back in your community. And heart was an acronym, uh, uh, holistic, engaging, appropriate, rewarding, thematic, uh -huh. kind of paralleling the path. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we, we did about a dozen case studies in it. And, uh, it sold like poison hotcakes. It did not sell them. And we self-published uh, through Amazon. And yeah. we had the notion we were going to write one called Put the Heart Back in Your Business and use case yeah. studies. And interestingly, when I started researching the businesses that I thought were interpretive inclined, Things like uh, Burt's Bees, Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream, uh, uh -huh. New Belgium Brewery out of uh, Fort Collins. Right. Every single one of them was bought out by a big conglomerate. Oh. <laughs> and they kind of did a heart transplant when they did it. You know, it's like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that good interpretive approach in yeah. an owner that owns thousands of businesses just didn't have the same feel that it did when it was one right. owner. Well, that's yeah. probably what made them valuable in the first place. A valuable acquisition was because of their application of those principles to begin with. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. So I, that's too bad. you know, I think it's a good concept, but I love your idea because I, I love the roadside guides to geology that were developed. And always yeah. we used to discuss there really needs to be something. I'm one of the few yeah. people other than the truck drivers that have driven uh, from Colorado to Southern Illinois on Interstate 70, you know, two, three times a year for 30 years. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> well, yeah. Well, you, you could have done the book. I'm sure. With that. I doubt you know, that I could have. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we interviewed farmers and, you know, we interpreted agriculture and most people that don't know what a silo is for. Uh, we had a story about why barns are red or why, why barns were red, you know, historically and just stuff like that, you know, and about the different crops and stuff that, uh, I mean, a lot of people probably take for granted, but I mean, I think we felt pretty convinced that most of our audience had no clue what they were driving past or, you yeah, know, set up pivot irrigation rigs and 
stuff like that. And uh, yeah. I was always amazed by those uh, stone fence posts. Yeah, yeah, we have a story on that too, the post rock. Yep. Yeah, on yeah. this Bob Dole country. Yeah, yeah. I guess all I can yeah, yeah. Bob Dole country to some degree, but. <laughs> yeah, I, obviously we have we have a story about that, and uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, it, it was fun, and I of course I love to travel, and I love to interpret things and to tell stories, and so it was it was really a uh oh. You know, a privilege really to have the opportunity to write those, and now I'm doing it for the app, and and I've been doing them for places all over. Just drove to Florida to help my son move, which was you may recall. But I took a little bit of a detour, and I stopped. I went across Alabama and Mississippi because I hadn't really driven much to those states, and so I stopped at Elvis's birthplace. And I oh, just wow. that was the last the last story I've submitted to audio was a few days ago. I I did one on Elvis's birthplace in Tupelo. And uh, it's fun, you know, to to see places and then to then write about them and you know put a little spin on your own spin on on the story. So you you mentioned uh, Kevin Costner. I spoke yeah. of his dedication of his uh, Tatanka story of the bison in Deadwood. Uh, I remember when you guys were engaged with him on that. Yeah, that was awesome. Debbie and Duncan Toole did, uh, they worked for him for a couple of years and they uh -huh. did the interpretive planning for that facility and they hooked me in to speak at the dedication. And it was really fascinating because he took a brownfield yeah. site and turned it into a beautiful tourist attraction that tells stories of the Lakota and Dakota people right. and that uses them as interpreters at the place. And it's pretty That's neat. great. Well, he narrates some of these stories for the app. He hasn't, as far as I know, he's never narrated any of mine yet, but especially when they're a little bit longer stories or more regional stories. Uh, and and I, he has some of his Hollywood friends, you know, Denzel Washington and other people narrate some of the stories. And as much as anything, that was my biggest motivation for getting involved. I don't, the money, like I said, is very trivial, but uh, I thought, wouldn't it be cool to have Morgan Freeman or something, just read my words out loud. You know, <laughs> if that ever happens, that's going to be the the real payoff for me. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, Are you doing yeah. any uh, training these days? Uh, very sporadically. I was invited to a um, uh, a birding festival where I, I made a little presentation on, on birding. I, I've been leading bird tours. Uh, so I, I have a trip, and I said when I say leading, I, I'm really organizing them. And then obviously we have local guides. But I've I've led trips to Thailand, uh, to Brazil. I'm taking a group to Brazil again uh, in November. This time to the Amazon. The last time it was the Pantanal. Uh, I'm going to Madagascar in September. And so, uh, and in fact, I, you know, a lot of quite a few of the people that have gone with me are people that I've met through NAI, you know, so there are other interpreters. Uh, okay. And, and I, I've never done, a, you know, and of course, NAI have their, have their own resources and stuff. So I've never done an official or never been asked to do an official NAI trip, but just because of the people who I know, they, the birders that I know, a lot of them are also interpreters. And so it's been fun to, to travel with other interpreters to some of these places, just informally, like I said, we don't call it an interpretive thing. It's a birding trip, but but obviously we pay attention to the interpretation when we're out there. We essentially do the same so, thing. Yeah. East Africa. This will be our fourth uh -huh. trip in March. And wow. uh, it 
used to be a, a little bit of a challenge to get 10 people to go along. And now uh -huh. post on Facebook that we're thinking about it. And the next uh -huh. day we have 10 people that want to put a <laughs> deposit. A deposit. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> and they're mostly yeah. interpreters. Yeah. And That's horse great. people. Because Lisa has been in the horse business in some way most of her life. And uh, my my right. wife, Lisa Brochu, who yeah. you know very well. Uh, oh, yeah. Raised Appaloosa horses in Texas. And uh, we had many miniature horses here on the island for a number of years. Oh, and we've nice. slept on a bit. We no longer have horses, but she still thinks about horses all day. Yeah. Every day. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's wonderful. Well, I uh, we've been at this almost an hour. Uh, is there anything we okay. haven't talked about you'd like to talk about? Um. I don't know. I mean, I, I I think one of your questions you had sent me was something about changes in the profession. And uh, I can just quickly speak to that in case you want to sure, edit no. out some of the other rambling and, and give you more content. And, and it's nothing profound. It's okay. nothing, nothing profound at all. I guess my my answer to that is, is that, you know, my my belief is, is that nothing's changed as far as the fundamental principles. I mean, going all the way back to even before you. Tilden, you know, and and so they still apply and uh but our tools have changed obviously and uh and technology and i think that's can be a blessing or a curse and uh uh i think back all the classes i spent probably for the first half of my career 15 years or something teaching how to give a slideshow and telling the students how you had to put the slides in the carousel upside down you know in this way and they would still goof it up in class and and uh Talk about you know talking about the difference between ectochrome and kodachrome and and uh, ASA and all that with photography and uh, what a different world we live in. But um, uh, yeah, I just think I just think it's a the different tools, but but you know we have to be careful that you know the tools don't get in the way of the message and and uh, don't get in the way of the principles uh, too. Uh, and just this past week, I saw on on the internet somewhere that there was a church service in Germany, a Luth, some sort of Lutheran conference or something where they had a big gathering. And for the first time, they had a sermon that was produced by uh, AI, uh, you know, that new AI, the AI program that'll write papers and stuff. So they did a sermon It had four different speakers. And it, but the whole sermon was developed and, and written, I guess, uh, and delivered by by the technology. And uh, it was so interesting to me that the, the feedback from people, uh, I mean, some people were impressed. Again, it's so easy to get impressed with technology, like, wow, that was amazing. But then several of the people in the audience that, that were quoted in this article talked about, well, there just wasn't any passion there. Or there wasn't the love, you know, they, and they use these words like love and passion, like we do, you know, and, and that's exactly Right. And that's what I would be so concerned about is, is, you know, to the extent that interpreters adopt this technology in the future, they're going to miss that warmth, you know, of, of a, I think, I think this is just my intuition. I don't have data or anything, but I think they're going to miss the real human interaction, the smile, the, the handshake, the physical touch, maybe of a, of a handshake before or after the presentation or a pat on the back or uh whatever anyways i'm just not sure that can be 
replicated through technology, even the best AI. So anyways, that's that's my only thoughts on that topic. If you had asked me that, that's what I would have said. We teach uh, Tilden's principles and your 15 principles from your gifts book in the Certified Interpretive Guide course. And we do these from our kitchen, right where I'm sitting. Uh -huh. When the pandemic came along and NAI decided they could do uh, distance learning kind of course, right. we started doing them. And I still prefer a face-to-face -face course always. Yeah. But I can tell you where we live in remote coffee country on the big island, <laughs> we offer a CIG course, we don't get four signups. Right. Physical course. But, right, sure. But we just taught a full 15 folks from all over the the country. Well, I think, I, yeah, and I think uh, even this is much better than the AI thing. I mean, I saw a little clip of the AI thing, and again, it was very robotic. I mean, I mean, you're a real person sitting there, and you can respond with real emotions, both visually and auditorily uh, uh, to me on the other side of the camera. And so this is much more real than even a computer generated sure. human figure, you know, which was the case with this um, this generated sermon that was uh, delivered there. So, uh, well, I, I so, think yeah, I understand. Is, it's is it number eight the your principle about technology? Yeah, yeah, and I, I, um, we always bring that up, and we always relate it back to Tilden's sixth and your sixth, and yeah. say. The key word we use for that sixth principle is approach. Yeah. Audience appropriate. Right. right. Very simply framed it between adults and children, and you broaden yeah. that. Um, yes. And so we always go back and say, you know what? Technology is great. Uh, when I worked yeah. at Bat Conservation International, a little bat detector would just bring the night alive with translating bat sounds down into our human hearing range. But yeah. you, you got to be picking a technology that's appropriate to your setting and to exactly. To the that's audience. exactly. It's just a tool, you know. And sometimes the technology becomes the show and gets in the way of the message. Everyone's everyone's saying, "Wow, this is so cool," and if and if they're thinking about the technology, then they're not thinking about the message. I think so. Uh, uh, yeah, but but it you know I think the way we wrote it in the the gifts book is something about uh, when it helps reveal something. Then it's appropriate. So in the case of the thing that they wouldn't have heard otherwise, a telescope, a microscope, um, all those things reveal. You use Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, great... uh, and it's it's great. It's a great tool, you know. And uh, but I think of that revelation, and I think we had some quote from Stravinsky at the end of that chapter about uh about how he challenged uh, the person to to um how do we say it? To astound me, you know, do, to or he was challenged to write something by a benefactor, and they said, "Just astound me." And and I think if we can use technology to do that, to astound people and to reveal things in, in astonishment when there was something's revealed to them, that's a great use of technology, you know. So uh, so yeah. Anyway, that's that's where I'm at. But but the the point is is that the message is is the key thing that we need to remember that we're trying to communicate something purposefully yeah. and and passionately so well i remember uh that so well from uh all of our careers in doing this work that when you can really light someone up when you can get them yeah. to think more deeply about your message yeah. and want to run with it the, and 
I know I meet people that I met 50 years ago that remember what I was talking about. That astonishes me because- uh, Yeah, me too. <laughs> That's something. I yeah. remember you said something about, someone told me not too long ago about that. I said something about water. I don't remember what it was, but I said, I never think about water the same. I go, well, wow. You know, it's 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 humbling, really. And it's, it's surprising. But um, it, one of the most rewarding things for me involving technology and revealing something is I had more of an advanced interp class. And for that, I had a little- a, a week or something on astronomy and interpreting the night sky and so we would go out and often i'd be able to show the kids uh saturn you know through a telescope sure. and you know college students are very oh uh, i don't know they're hard to get a rise out of you know what i mean they're they're, they're as far as showing their emotions or you know they're too cool you know they're they're too worried about cool and and all that but many times when the when these kids would first see Saturn for the first time, after seeing it in cartoons, you know, with the rings or whatever, and they would actually see, and you know, it's that kind of that chartreuse greenish yellow typically. And and even 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 these crusty college students, you could see they would take them aback, you know, the, you know, like a little like, wow, or you know, something. They couldn't couldn't help but express some shock or something and seeing the real Saturn with their own eyes. And that was, I got such a kick out of that over the years. Uh, but that was one of those examples. I was using technology, a telescope, to reveal something that they otherwise wouldn't have seen. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a beautiful thing. For me, doing this podcast, the, the real joy of it has been connecting with old friends and colleagues that I haven't seen in a long time. This has been a great pleasure because uh, your book oh, is, still, thank you. is still prominent in our teaching, uh, your, your books. And uh, I just wish you well with everything you continue to do. And I hope Thank our you, paths, I hope our paths cross physically one of these days and we get to shake hands. I do too. Yeah, it's been great seeing you and give my best to Lisa. And uh, yeah, I hope we can connect uh, in person one of these days. If not here, maybe in Africa or who knows where. And uh, it, it would be a wonderful thing if, if we could... Uh, meet in person again so uh thank you for this opportunity and i look forward to listening to some of your other podcasts and i'm sure uh, uh i'll enjoy hearing from some folks that i have known over the years as well so thanks ted for joining me today on reflections on interpretation talking story with guides and interpreters uh, next week i'll be talking to bill gwaltney an old friend and colleague who has had an amazing career with national park service and a variety of other very unique venues. He also lives here in the Hawaiian Islands. And I would love to see some of you join us with uh, Lisa Brochu will be teaching an interpretive planning course from 8 to 11 a.m. Hawaii time, August 21st to 24th. You can learn more about it and register at heartfeltassociates.com. I'd like to thank Mark Stoffel for use of his wonderful mandolin music on his 101 album today's song was huddy's world thanks for being here today have a wonderful day and week aloha